0: So we're going to be in uh, Matthew 1 in just a moment, if you'd like to turn there. Uh, In the Black Pew Bibles, it's on page 807. But while, uh, while you're turning there, I want you to think back to a watershed moment in your life. Now, this might be a little bit different for everybody, but there was a point in your life when you looked down on the world, and it was your oyster, Right? Whether that was a high school graduation, a college graduation, a wedding, some other event, you can look back and and, and you had these these great expectations for how your life was going to go. Uh, you know, we, we may not have expected to be billionaires, but we but we looked at it and we said, you know, I'm gonna be able to live a, a, a comfortable life and, and you know, maybe have a have a camp and and or, or, or a vacation home or something, you know, just, just a little bit of luxury. We looked at our lives and said, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not going to be president, but maybe I'll have enough power and influence that, that that when I speak, people will listen to me. Some of us, that's why we, we became parents, right? And then that didn't quite work out. <laughs> or we look out and we say that, you know, this, this place that I'm going to, this, this is the place that I should be, and I'll feel comfortable, I'll feel secure, I'll feel at peace. And so whatever this time was, we had these expectations, and I think that we've all found that those expectations were not always met in the way that we expected them to be, Uh and so the nation of Israel had expectations for how their, their corporate life as a nation was supposed to go. Uh, back when God called Abraham out of uh, Ur, he said uh, in, in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And he goes on in, in, God goes on in Genesis 15 and 17 and 22 to promise Abraham the, the promised land, all of this blessing. And so the nation of Israel interpreted that as this, this expectation that God is going to raise up, raise us up. God is going to make us rich enough so that we make everybody who, who's on our side rich as well. And then as time went on, Israel came to David. And at the end of his reign, God said to him, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So this was a promise, not just of power, but of power that would last perpetually. His throne would be established forever. And initially, it looked like that promise was fulfilled in the life of King Solomon, right? Until after Solomon died and the kingdoms divided, that hope got a little bit dimmer And then all hope of that was dashed, right? When, uh, with the conquest and the exile to Babylon. And so the people of Israel expected another king to arise, to lead them to that same place of power and prominence that they had with David. And then we have the promises along the exile. So with that exile, Isaiah promised in in Isaiah 9 and then in Isaiah 11, this fair judgment, this peace in the earth. This is from Isaiah uh, chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So from the line of David and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might So they expected, they expected this coming Messiah to bring peace on the earth, to return them from their exile, to reconcile them with God, to cause them to belong in a place and to their God one more time. And so Matthew, in his gospel, is writing to this Jewish people to convince them that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was the fulfillment of all of their expectations, and so he he starts that off with this genealogy, right in in the first it's the first four or five paragraphs there, uh, and that genealogy is divided up into parts. It's divided up into three parts, uh, and and we see that right starting in verse two. It says Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and so on and so forth down to verse six. He says, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So that's the first section, Abraham to David. The second section starts, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And it goes down to verse 11, um, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon, the exile to Babylon. And then it goes from Babylon down to verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband, Of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And so, as you have these three parts corresponding roughly to those three sets of promises, right? The promise to Abraham, the promise to David, and then the promise through Isaiah to the nation of Israel. And so, as Jesus is descended from each one of these, through each one of those uh, lines, He is eligible to be the fulfillment of those expectations, of those prophecies, right? And then after that genealogy, Matthew moves on to describe the circumstances of this arrival. So let's pick up in in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. or the expectations that that the Jewish people had at that time, was that the Messiah was going to come, and he would come with with material blessing, with riches. He would be a powerful king, and he would give them this sense of, of belonging, the sense of place that they had back, back when they first entered the promised land. And so to fulfill those expectations, what do we have? Right? We have Jesus, born to these poor, disgraced teenage parents, fulfilling the promise of riches. We have this, this infant being born in obscurity, who was to fulfill this expectation of a powerful king. And we, we learn later on uh, in, in Jesus' life, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't belong to this world. He's a sojourner. He's a pilgrim. And that those who follow after him as king should never expect to be anything more than that. So we have these, these three expectations that are not fulfilled, apparently, at all in the life of Jesus. So Matthew has made a pretty poor case so far. For the fulfillment of these expectations that were held by his audience. But Jesus didn't fulfill those expectations because they were framing their expectations in terms of what they wanted or or, or what they thought they needed rather than in terms of what God was doing and what he had actually promised. See, the Bible ultimately is not the story of the Jews. It's not your story, and it's not my story. Each of those characters show up periodically in it, right? The Jews show up. There are parts of the Bible that are addressed directly to us. But the Bible is ultimately a book about God. It tells us who he is, what he's into, and and what he's up to. Uh, If that sounds clever, it's because it didn't originate with me. Um, Who he is, what he's into, and what he's up to. So the Jewish people had taken the attitude that God's promises were all about them. We're all about building them up. We're all about making them rich and powerful, making them at peace. And before we judge them too harshly for that, we tend to have the same issue today, right? We look at the Bible as a book that reveals God's promises to us or to the United States or to a particular political party. But there is an older, deeper purpose to what God is doing here. A purpose that predates the exile, that predates David or Abraham and far transcends any nation or person. And we see this back in the creation narrative, back in the book of Genesis. Right, We have God creating the world and pronouncing it good, creating the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, image bearers of God, to be stewards of creation. And they walked with God in the garden. They had this perfect relationship with God, this perfect relationship with each other, and this perfect relationship with themselves. And yet they sinned. They rebelled against God's rule, against His law. Ultimately, they thought that they knew a better way than what God had told them. And so that sin caused this breaking, this fracturing of everything. And we see that today, right? From the difficulty in relating to our spouses to the natural disasters that kill and destroy. All of the hurt and all of the pain and all of the struggle that we see in our world is a result of the brokenness introduced by sin. And furthermore, we wear that brokenness on our hearts. And so the reason back in the day, that we never reached the place that we felt like we were rich enough or powerful enough. The reason that we never felt like we belonged was because of that ongoing impact and influence of sin, both in the world around us and in our very hearts. So we look at our weakness, we look at our frailty, our propensity to lie, to cheat, to push others down while we climb up, And in our darkest moments, we wonder just how broken we really are. Just how deep does that rabbit hole go? And we long desperately for that brokenness to be healed, for that emptiness to be filled. We ultimately want to get back to the garden, to go back to that one place that we truly belonged. Because that's what we were made for. Relationship with God to belong with him. And so when we look at Matthew's account, we see that he is addressing not the Jewish cultural expectations for a rich and powerful king who would throw out the Romans, but he is addressing the need for a savior that has existed from the time of that first sin, from the time of that first rebellion and the fracturing that it caused. And as he did that, he fulfilled the prophetic words that the Jewish people had been waiting for. Although in a way that they didn't quite expect. Instead of addressing their physical poverty, he addressed their spiritual poverty. Instead of addressing their physical oppression, he addressed their spiritual oppression. And Instead of addressing their physical and political displacement, he addressed their status as spiritual outcasts, as wanderers looking for the garden. And we see that in verse 21, in the name that is given to this child. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So he will save his people, not from poverty, not from political oppression, not their exile, but from the deepest, original, true problem of humanity, their sin. And this is accomplished in a a very particular way. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So not only was this the story of the start of the solution to the problem of sin, it was accomplished in a very specific way. God with us. So he didn't require that we go to him to climb a a stairway to heaven, but he came to us. The one who saves us from our sins meets us where we are. He comes to us. Wherever it is that we are, he comes to us. Whatever it is that we've done, he comes to us. And so on Christmas, that is what we need to remember. The majestic creator of the universe, the all-powerful God, come to meet us just exactly where we are. And he comes to meet us with a message. And it's a message that's sometimes left out at Christmas. But we see it in Matthew four when when Jesus begins to preach publicly for the first time, and he says, "Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand." Ultimately, Christmas is not just this calm, silent night when a baby was born who would grow up to become a, a, a good and teacher. But Christmas was D-Day. Christmas was the start of an invasion. The invasion of the kingdom of heaven against the forces of evil. Truth invading falsehood. Hope invading despair. Light invading the dark. The true and rightful king over all creation invading ground held by rebels. You and I. And as sinners, we are simultaneously the thing that he came to save but also the foot soldiers in that rebellion against Him. But He came, and instead of bringing conquest or annihilation, instead of bringing to us the destruction we deserved, He came to be with us, God with us, to preach to us the mes- message of His mercy, of His grace, and of His forgiveness. He preached to us a message of repentance, If we, as those rebels, lay down our arms and cease our rebellion, all would not just be forgiven, but we would be adopted as His sons and daughters. The default path of our sinful, broken hearts is to live our lives in that rebellion, in slavery to sin. But on Christmas... God has come to redeem us to buy us back out of that slavery to sin to raise us to life out of death and to call us to leave behind the weapons of our rebellion against him because ultimately that's what sin that's what our sin is those are the weapons of our rebellion because when we sin we pick up that weapon to fight god you can't tell me what to do You can't tell me how to live my life. I'm going to do what I want. And so the call of repentance is to lay down those weapons of rebellion and to be forgiven, regardless of how long or how tightly we've held on to them or how badly we've hurt ourselves or others around us with them. It's a call to lay them down, to find peace, and love, and forgiveness, and healing. Because your Savior has been born. The one who will save you from the consequences of your rebellion. The one who will save you from your sin. Now this announcement that was made in Matthew 4 continues today. The gospel is being proclaimed. And with each day that goes by, there are more and more rebels who lay down their arms and in love and faith and trust in the Christ, in Emmanuel. And each day that goes by is one more day that that gospel of peace is sung. But each day that goes by is one day closer to the day when we will be held to account for the side that we have chosen. Have we chosen to be God's enemy? Have we chosen to hang on to those weapons of sin in defiance of our creator? Have we chosen to follow our own rules, make our own path, seek after ourselves? Have we chosen rebellion? Or have we chosen reconciliation with God? Have we chosen to turn away from our sin and lay down our lives in honor and love for a creator God who made us, who sustains us. The God who came to be with us so that we might no longer be rebels, but friends and, and more than friends, adopted sons and daughters, children of our heavenly father. Those are the only two choices, rebellion or reconciliation. There is no middle ground. There is no gradient. There's no continuum of kind of rebelling, sort of rebelling, not really rebelling. But it's light or darkness, truth or the lie, reconciliation or rebellion. Ultimately, the true uniqueness of Christmas is not... Emmanuel, God with us, because mankind had that in some shape once before in the garden. But rather, the miracle is that he came to us in the midst of our wandering, in the midst of our sin, in the middle of our rebellion, to make the way home for us, to be the way home for us, the way back to the place that we long for, the place that we yearn for the place that's described in in Hebrews 11 as as a better country, a heavenly one that God is preparing for us. Because this world, with its pain, with its suffering, with its sickness, this world of sin and death is not what we were made for. It's not where we belong. And these weapons of sin and rebellion that we try to wield can do nothing to heal the hurts, calm the anxiety, or create a place for us to belong. These weapons only have the power to hurt and to kill. And in that final accounting, they only bring death to those who wield them. And so Christmas calls us to lay down those weapons of rebellion and rejoice in the glory of a merciful God who came to us to rescue us in the middle of our rebellion. Because of that rebellion, we deserved condemnation, but we received justification. We deserved wrath, but we received mercy. We deserved death. And we were given life. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. I implore you today, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father, this is a beauty, and this is a truth that we don't deserve, could never have deserved. That Father, you would come to be with us. That you would become that way home for us. That way home that we are all looking for. That satisfaction that we long for. The fulfillment that we cannot find in any other place. Whatever we've tried, whatever we've pursued, Father, we have found or we will find all of those things to be empty and meaningless. But Father, you came to us in the middle of our searching, in the middle of our blind wanderings. Father, you came to us to be our way back to you. We thank you for that. We rejoice in that. And Father, for each one of the ways that that we have lived our lives in rebellion against you, for each one of the ways that we have sought to, to make our own path, for each one of the ways that we have defied you as the creator, Father, we repent of that. We repent of those sins collectively. I repent of those sins individually. And Father, we glory in your grace. We rejoice in the fact that because we have trusted in Christ, you give us that grace. We can lay down those weapons of rebellion and pursue you with our whole hearts. And Father, that is what I ask you would allow to happen in my life. Father, I ask that you would help me to pursue you with my whole heart. Father, not divided, not trying to walk a fine line, but Father, help me to pursue you with everything that I have everything that I am and everything that I hope to be, Father. And I thank you for the mercy that you have shown us that we can pray that prayer. I thank you for the grace that you have given us that we can live our lives in expectation of that. Father, I ask that you would give us the courage to continue in that walk, Father. Give us the, the courage that we need to be able to wake up every morning and choose the life of obedience. Choose the life that you have, that you have given us rather than choosing to pick up those weapons of sin. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that it would be at work in our hearts in the week to come so that, Father, we would return here more eager, desiring more than this world has to offer, desiring more than we can find any place else, that we would return here rejoicing in you, seeking after you and giving glory to you in all that we do. We pray this all in Jesus' name.